Lots of good music today. Um, let's go to Acts chapter 4, and as we begin, I don't want to uh, neglect the fact that it is Memorial Day weekend, and uh, to be thankful to Christ for being in a place where we can celebrate Him and be thankful for those who gave their lives for that reason and for that purpose, that we can uh, just be reminded of God's goodness to our land. And again, that theme of gratitude, to be reminded that, that God has given us so many things, we need to live our lives in a way that will bless Him and an offering to Him in that. We're going to continue and uh, hopefully finish up in Acts chapter 4 today. The first several chapters of Acts follow a, a pretty uniform pattern. We see God do something amazing. We see uh, Peter preach about it. And we see the church unified following that. Uh, all through chapters 1 through 4, this is the pattern that we see. And, and in conclusion, uh, last week was a bit of a transition as far as the text goes. I, don't, I, I like to remind us all along the way that when guys like Luke, Dr. Luke, were writing down Scripture, and that's who we believe wrote down the book of Acts, that he didn't write down the chapter numbers. Okay. It's not, it's not like you would structure a book if you're writing or you're reading a book. Sometimes there's just a divider there. And uh, the, really what we find is that the transitional piece out of this was our previous passage. When the, the believers saw everything that had happened through Peter and John in chapters 3 and 4, when we saw them arrested, brought before the Sanhedrin, and then still pro proclaim Christ in those moments. And so now we see that, that we, we have another transitional moment where we see how the, the church acts in response to what they see God doing. And that's one of the reasons I brought up the attitude of gratefulness, of thankfulness this morning, because what we find here is a picture of gratitude. An exercise that reflects what God has done for them and their recognition of His goodness. And really, when we look at our lives and our walk with Christ, one of the things I remember bringing up many years ago, we, we tend to think of life in, in, in terms of the disciplines that we walk through, that we need to remember to do this, and then we need to remember to do this, and then if we want to change a habit, we need to change this and be intentional about it so that we have improvement and we, we you know, lose weight, right? If you want to lose weight, the first, uh, uh, when I was in PT after my ankle surgery, he said, well, you know where that starts first. <laughs> Not with exercise. Starts in the kitchen. Oh, okay, I don't want to hear that. So anyway... <laughs> So, you know, you, we tend to yo-yo on those things, right? But if we want to see something change, we need to change our attitude about it. We need to change what we do. And our behavior then it becomes a, a reflection of, really, the, the attitude of gratitude that we can, that we're still here kicking, basically, when it comes down to it, right? We give back because of so much that was given to us. Each week we have a time of offering. It's one of the disciplines that we offer. And actually, you know, it's necessary to see the function of the church continue. It's, there's so many things that go into your small gift. You can apportion that out into so many different ways. But one of the things that we make sure we do as a church family is we give forward to kingdom work in gratitude. And what we find here in Acts chapter 4 is that in gratitude, 
God has drawn the church together, and now they give back with everything in common. And this is a reflection of the second chapter of Acts, a passage that we look at over and over and over as we, we've seen it parsed out into disciplines within the church life and, and different ways it plays out. But really, it's just a descriptor of what was happening at that moment. Now, it can be a good model moving forward. But friends, gratitude is always the best model that we give forward because of everything that God has given us. I very intentionally thought of that attitude of gratitude, talking about Memorial Day, thinking about everything that was given so that we have the opportunity to be here right now. People, soldiers, airmen, sailors, as I heard described this week, jarheads. I don't know anybody. I, it, was, it was a soldier that said that. It wasn't me. Anyway, um, but anybody who has served, we, we are grateful to them, and particularly those who gave their lives for that. But then... We, we come to those moments through the year, and they, they exist along the way. We get Memorial Day, we get July 4th, we get Veterans Day. We, we are thankful for all the different ways that work out that way. Really, though, for me, I have to start being reminded of everything that I'm faith, th thankful for if it wasn't there anymore. And that, for me, is one of the things Memorial Day will do, Right? We think about those we've lost, whether there's somebody in the military or, or somebody we've lost this past year. We think, I sure do miss that person. How would they want me to live my life now? I, I choose to think God wants us to live thankfully. And that's really what we see here happening as the disciples met together in response to what they have seen the Holy Spirit do in this time. Now, today happens to be Pentecost Sunday on the church calendar. You know, several weeks after the, uh, the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, 10 days after his ascension, this is the day the church celebrates as Pentecost Sunday. It's the first time I've been preaching in the book of Acts on such a day. Obviously, that was in Acts chapter 2, but hey, let's just be reminded that we celebrate these things and we remember these things because of God, things God did and that he is still doing things through us. So his spirit is at work. His spirit lifts us up, as Bob just saying. His spirit encourages us to serve him together. And what we offer then back should not be an obligation. Being obligated about something can, can breed bitterness. If we measure the cost of our lives, I can't help but be thankful because Christ gave his life for me. And this is what we find ourselves here is that the, the church is at work, the Spirit is working through her, and now we find how they responded. And we see a new character pop up too. Let's stand and look at Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. 
And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the, the apostles' feet. Lord, a transitional passage here leads us into an interesting one next week. But Lord, I pray that we are reminded of everything we have to be thankful for. And most of all, the gift of life that we have in your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Some of you might wish for a softer seat to sit on. I'm always think, I always think about these things. Uh, so, uh, 17 years ago, it's hard to believe now, I uh, got to go to, to England on, sem- on a seminary study trip, and we visited St. Paul's Cathedral in London. There were no seats. They had to stand all the way through church. Anybody want to stay standing? Okay, that's all right. Be thankful for the, the bench, the pew that you sit upon today. I'm also thankful that climate control happens. Anyway, um, so the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Where was the church right at this very moment? It was only in one place right now. Jerusalem. I got a map. I like maps. They're pretty. I have a multi-purpose map here to, to show. And I, I think I got it there. No, is it there? Did we find it? No. They fell asleep back there. All right, well, there's a map. Eventually, it'll pop up there. The church itself was focused in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's down in the bottom right-hand corner, a little red dot. I need to get me one of those laser pointers. Anybody want to get me a Father's Day present? They can do that. All right, the bottom right-hand corner, a little red dot, Jerusalem. And then we see in the Mediterranean Sea, and right in the middle, a bunch of arrows pointing at an island. That island is Cyprus. Okay, I kind of think it looks like a narwhal, but you know, whatever. Anyway, um, Cyprus is an island in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, and we hear about a few of these islands along the way. The, The Mediterranean Sea is a major player in the Roman Empire, right? So we have Cyprus, you have Crete, that's where Titus was a pastor. You have Malta, that's where the, the, apostles, or the Apostle Paul uh, was shipwrecked at the end of the book of Acts. All these different places, right? Instead of an airplane, the fastest way to get from here to there could have been on a boat, you know? We also have the Roman road, which was uh, still in existence today. Uh, it's amazing how often they repave the roads in Pueblo, and that one in Rome is still there. Anyway, all right, so... Um, I am thankful they're repaving the roads in Pueblo. Don't get me wrong. All right. So anyway, um, so we're, the, the church is in Jerusalem. And this is a, actually a map. When I looked up Barnabas, this is the map that popped up. Okay. Because he shows up later. We're going to come back to him. He's an important player in the book of Acts. He, uh, he, he's, a, he's a guy who is obviously generous. And what can we learn from him? And I, and I don't think there's just one lesson because, again, he shows up and again and again and again in the book of Acts. But what we find here is a positive that will lead to a negative that we'll look at next week. If you know anything about Acts chapter 5, it's a pretty notorious passage when you talk about a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. 
It's unfortunately, I think, a misinterpreted passage, but also it's not easy to interpret what's happening here. What we do see here is a positive that comes before a negative. There's a comparison at play here. And really, this passage begins chapter 5 for us. Because what we find in chapter 5 is an example of what God was continually doing in the book of Acts. There's two ways, well, there's probably more than two ways, but two ways I think about looking at the book of Acts that I thought through in this and had a conversation with somebody that brought that to mind several weeks ago is Acts can be descriptive or Acts can be prescriptive. I think for our sanity, perhaps, I definitely think for our interpretation, it is a healthy thing to remember that Acts is very descriptive of things that were happening at that moment. We cannot, in our own power, reproduce what is happening in the book of Acts. Because humans didn't do it. God did. Okay, I'm going to say that again. We cannot, in our power, reproduce what happened in the book of Acts because humans did not do it. God did. And so when we see God at work here, we need to recognize that it is His, indeed, His work. And so now we see the ultimate product of His work, and that is that the believers were on common ground together. Two chapters prior, we saw that in chapter 2, they were there for the, the festival of weeks, the festival of Pentecost, and we see that people from all around the Roman Empire, and I found a map that I, for some reason, couldn't track down again, but it talked about all the different places that they came from in the Roman Empire. These Jews had come to Jerusalem. The diaspora returned, the dispersion returned. And when they heard the gospel, they believed and they trusted Christ and then they took it back to where they came from. But in this place, we see that the, the action that is described here is in the city of Jerusalem and the believers there were likely in the number of tens of thousands at this point. In a matter of several weeks after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ and his um, his resurrection and ascension and the, the coming of the Holy Spirit, we see the church multiply, all right? So that's where we find ourselves. The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. It is a very healthy practice to remember you can't take anything with you when you leave. Somebody's got to clean up the mess. After you're gone. Now, we can do what we can. I've known several people through the years that have you know, gone through and started giving away their treasures to me. Thank you. Um, but, you know, it made me think about all the different things that we think that are ours. That really, we just are borrowing. And, and our wealth is the same way. Whatever we own represents some measure of transaction of money. 
Somebody might have given it to you, but somebody paid for it eventually back. You go back far enough, right? You might barter. I got to go on a field trip with Nathan's class to El Pueblo Museum a couple of weeks ago, and they talked about bartering things because they didn't, or trading things because they didn't really have money. You know, your possessions hold value, right? In this case, though, they realized that the greatest possession they had was not of this earth. And when they realized the things they had mattered to the kingdom, they were willing to share. And they gave freely to one another. It says it right there, right? Verse 32, uh, last part. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. All right, so the problem I run into personally when I start looking at that is that when I give somebody something, I'm like, make sure you're taking care of what I gave you. But guess what? It's a gift. It belongs to them now. I can't do anything about it. I don't need to go and be, you know, the, there were derogatory terms used that I won't use here, but be somebody who goes and takes it back because I don't think you were doing what you should have with it. Because really, it's not mine anyway. Never was. I started working on my garage a little bit this week. We're going to have a yard sale here in a couple of weeks across the street from the church. Bring your treasures, right? Well, all these things we think we need that end up landing in whatever storeroom or garage or they pile up on the table and we, we put it there for a reason and it hasn't moved. We are so blessed. And I hope we are reminded of the blessings of our possessions. Now, Verses 33 and 34 are very important, and our attitude and interpretation is important as well. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Their lives were a reflection of their belief and their witness of Jesus Christ dying for their sins and rising from the dead and ascending. Everything they did was a reflection of what happened right there. And they were radically obedient to the Lord Jesus. It was a special time in history. They were seeing things happen that did not happen before. Right? Unique moments. And they testified to the grace of the Lord. And some of us wish we could have that obvious of a picture in front of us because it would be a whole lot easier to believe. But what did Jesus say to his disciples to Thomas, when he doubted. You're blessed because you've seen, but you're blessed greater those who believe your testimony. We have a greater blessing because the Holy Spirit is still with us and in us. And the reason you know the gospel, the reason you've heard the message is because of those who have radically given their lives to obedience in Jesus Christ. Verse 34 is a, an interesting verse to try to interpret what was actually happening here. There was not a needy person among them, for as many were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid at the disciples' feet, and it was distributed to as many, each as any had need. A lot of people in history have interpreted that that they, they rid themselves of all possession. 
It doesn't really say that. There were people of wealth and there were people in poverty. What it says is that they were willing to share with one another. And they recognized that they had a chance to help those in need. There on this earth will always be rich people and there will always be poor people. And as a matter of fact, in history, those are typically the two people that exist. Middle class is a very Western civilization existence. People are generally either rich or poor. There weren't much in between. And so the rich were constantly helping the poor. And there was always those moments of need. And there was always going to be somebody who had more than the person next to them. It wasn't the, the, the amount of the possession wasn't what was important, guys. It was what they were willing to do with it. There will always be people who have great means and people who have lesser means. And how that is supposed to be distributed, we, intend to, we tend to, in our culture, turn that into a measure of obligation. That just because someone has wealth, they somehow came about it dishonestly. There's no proof of any of that. Some people are just good at money. I'm not. Anyway, so we see that there are people who have that opportunity, that live generously, and they just seem to be continually blessed. But guess what? They tend to continually give as well. And I think being created in the image of God, we want to help those that are around us, and we should want to help those that are around us. But we tend to give with strings, and that's what I was talking about earlier. I want to know that what I give is being used the way I want it to be used. That's not biblical, though. When we give, we trust the Lord to do the work through the gift. Acts 4 ends as a reflection of this entire passage, as an echo of everything that had happened before. What did Peter and John do? In Acts chapter 3, they raised this man who had never walked to a place of leaping, and, and what was he walking and leaping and praising God, right? You know, that, that old, old Sunday school song. They raised him to health and strength. And so now as they see the, the, uh, the picture of all God had done, they saw that these guys got arrested, right? Peter and John spent the night in jail. They came back and they talked to their friends, and their friend says, that's amazing! You, that's not usually the response you get when you say you spent the night in jail. <laughs> no. They were released because there was no proof that they had done anything wrong. And God brought healing through those things. And so they prayed for this boldness. And in that unity, in their trust in Christ and his gospel, they shared all things in common. They brought together everything that God had given them. But we also see that there's a place of extravagant trust and what God would do. And we see it, I think it's in verse 35. Yes, they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was a distributed to each as any had need. They had great wealth 
that all came to this place, and they trusted the apostles who had been with Jesus to distribute it appropriately. I would hope that we could trust each other better than we can trust Denver or Washington, D.C. Because I don't know those people. They tend to want things from me every year. Anybody ever been there? Anybody ever worked in that office? All right, so they tend, you know, we, we, we are taxed and we don't necessarily know where it goes. But when we give, we, we must trust the Lord to do the work that he has called each of us to do. It doesn't mean we're, we're frivolous with things and just start throwing things around but that we would trust God to do his work. There was extravagant trust in Christ and in his church to do the work. It was a mutual call, and it was a mutual sacrifice. He called them together, and they served together. And they, the, the picture we see in conclusion to this is Joseph, who is called Barnabas. Thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, was made the sons of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus. We got the map up there. Cyprus, the I don't know what that looks like in the middle. We obviously have varying opinions. But that island that's pretty close to, to Lebanon, to Israel, to those areas. He was a native of that, but it was a, he was a Levite, he was a Jew. And he had placed his trust in Christ, and they called him Barnabas because he was an encourager. And one of the questions that I ended up reading, I read through different commentaries in the week, and pred, pred, oh, man, this one got all over me, so it probably means I need to share it with you. If somebody gave you a nickname, would it be Barnabas? <laughs> I don't want to. Anyway, he's a Levite, a native of Cyprus. He sold a field that belonged to him. It says he sold a field. He was a man of means. Doesn't say how many fields he sold. It says he sold a field and he did this with it. He brought the money from that sale and laid it at the apostles' feet. He gave every bit of that sale to help the cause of the gospel. It was a heart of generosity. And I don't think it's an accident that several chapters later we see this man become one of the very first missionaries. He was willing to give more than his possessions. He gave his very life to serve the Lord. And he was one who built other people up. We'll come back to that. But we wouldn't have a guy named Mark in the Bible if it wasn't for Barnabas, probably. We see that he had great means and he was willing to give his blessings. And I pray that's my heart. I pray that's our church's heart. That we recognize all that God has given us and are generous in returning that gift to Him. Because ultimately, whatever gift we have, we're trusting Him to do His work through it. Because I can't make you do anything. I think that's obvious. You can't make me do anything, and you're going to say, that sure is obvious. Okay, the fact is, is that God has called us to radically obey and trust him with everything he's given us. I'm grateful for faithful, disciplined givers. 
But don't let the discipline of giving eat at your heart. Because sometimes we just do it because we're supposed to. Why do you do laundry? Because you got to sit next to somebody tomorrow. <laughs> because you're supposed to. Why do people have the sign on the door of a restaurant that says, no shirt, no shoes, no service? It's because typically we don't want to see the two things that are uncovered in that point. You know, we have all these different expectations that can be rules, but ultimately our disciplines should be guided through hearts of generosity. We should discipline ourselves so that we, in Romans 12, it says we are to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, which is our good and acceptable act of worship, right? When we discipline ourselves, it's that we can give ourselves fully to Christ and bless Him in all things. Because ultimately, that's the greatest gift we have, is who we are. You might not have a big bank account, but you got a big heart. And you got the same amount of time as the person next to you. Until you don't. Until that, that, that breath stops. How do we give ourselves back? This goes beyond money. And I hope that this passage reflects that for us. That it goes really to more who we are. They recognized the need around them and they willingly gave because of all that God had given them. We don't deserve salvation. It is a free gift. And when we receive the gift, the way our Savior is most blessed is when we freely give it away. That means our time, what's that old song? All our time, money, talent, time, and love. Love is the last in that list, right? It's hard to love sometimes. But the definition of agape is sacrifice. And it's ingratitude. God loves us. He gave us the greatest gift we could have. And he calls us to live in a way that would bless him in that. Will we love him? Will we serve him today and recognize fivefold <laughs> or more the things we need to be grateful for? And imagine what it would be like without those things that God has given us. And ultimately, what would our lives be without Jesus? Will we give our lives back to him today? Let's pray. Lord, we had a debt we couldn't pay, and you, you paid it.